Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast, where Nigel Farage and Nikolai Hubble give you a unique take on what's really going on in the world of finance, investing, and politics. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to this week in review with John Butler, the investment director of Southlink Investment Research, which is of course the publisher of Fortune and Freedom. John, let's have an energy theme this week. I'm going to throw three different news stories at you. Uh, we're going to start with the first one, which made me laugh. It's the North Sea Transition Authority, uh, which is an ironic name. It's announced that it has uh, permitted the Rosebank oil field, which is 18 miles off the coast of Shetland, to produce oil until 2050. Uh, we're talking about 500 million barrels of oil, or at least up to that amount. We've got a Norwegian state-owned energy company that's going to be producing that oil alongside uh, a London-listed stock, Ithaca Energy. Uh, drilling could start as soon as 2026, uh, 1,200 jobs. It's all good news. G- give me the energy take here first before I ask you about whether this is another sign of net zero sort of crumbling. Well, look, I mean, it sounds like an impressive field development. And by all means, I mean, it, 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 the economics of it sound promising. But with respect to the global oil market, it's really a drop in the bucket or drop in the barrel, you might say. The fact is, is that that amount of oil, while materially significant for jobs, revenues, and of course the taxes thereon in the UK, means something for sure and and has a a very positive angle to it. Um, Globally, it doesn't really make a difference to the global oil market or generalizing to global energy markets. Uh, But for what it's worth, it's, uh, it's, it's an important step for the UK in terms of trying to take advantage of what is still a meaningful local energy resource. So it sounds like you sh- sort of share James Allen's perspective that, you know, one oil field here and there, even if it's this big, isn't going to really matter that much to the overall situation because oil is just such a fungible market, such a global market. It doesn't really matter where the oil specifically is drilled. It's the fact that there's not enough overall that's the key. It's not, it's, not, it's not going to affect the price at the pump for the UK consumer. It will, however, create jobs and generate revenues, which will, of course, be taxable and will help with government finances. And we probably can say as well, there's a bit of energy security involved here, which is yeah, probably a good idea absolutely. too. Um, let's then turn to the second part of the question, which is about net zero. Um, They're cutting it a bit fine with 2050. They are supposed to be phasing out a lot of fossil fuels long before then as well. But it seems to me that if you look at the the sequence of events over the last few weeks, this is another nail in the coffin of of net zero, even if we're very early on in that phase, you know, another brick pulled out of the wall of net zero. Do you see that same sort of trend? Well, look, I mean, you've done a lot of work on this yourself, Nick, and uh, one can only approach the whole net zero topic with at least a degree, if not many degrees, of healthy skepticism. Many of the targets that have been put in place are clearly not realistic, but then you could argue that, that you know, basic physics and, and, and the way in which your know, life on Earth happens to, happens to exist and evolve um, are not compatible with, with, uh, with, net ze- with strict net zero assumptions. So I'm not remotely surprised that we're seeing pushback against uh, the the net zero trend, if you want to call it, uh, on a variety of fronts now. Um, There's the scientific front. There's also the lifestyle front. You know, there there are many different aspects to this. And 
it, it seems to me that the whole concept of net zero is simply becoming a bit just generally politically unpopular. And it takes many forms. Uh, I mean, including the things like taking down uh, cameras in the greater London area to try and stop the rollout uh, or the, the effective implementation of the ultra low emission zone. So, you know, watch this space. But <laughs> this appears to be a building, a building trend, a, a pushback against net zero. Sorry to interrupt, but if you're enjoying this content, you can get it every single day. Just click the link in the description or go to fortuneandfreedom.com. Get a daily email from our team of experts. Thank you. And the, the subsequent question is, if it's politically viable for someone like Rishi Sunak, to drill for this much oil in the North Sea up to 2050, then politicians around the rest of the world are going to be looking at that and thinking to themselves, well, this might be on the table for me. So perhaps it will have some sort of uh, larger impact. And as Nigel Farage has pointed out in a past video, it's sort of individual events that that shape these trends. And this might be, when we look back on it, a, a key moment for oil and fossil fuel and for turning around on net zero. Closely related to this idea, is a report from The Guardian and some researchers called Corporate Accountability, which is a non-for-profit organization that sort of investigates whether companies are really abiding by their emissions rules. They've done some research on the top 50 emissions offset projects, meaning you, know, you pay for a forest to be planted to try and capture the carbon. And this offsets your carbon emissions in the other parts of your business. Unfortunately, they found out that basically all of these carbon offsets are at the very least dodgy, most of them are junk, as they put it. So I'll read some of the statistics here because they're extraordinary. A total of 39 of the top 50 emissions projects were categorized as likely junk. Eight others look, look problematic. And the efficacy of the remaining three projects could not be determined because there wasn't enough information. So overall, about a billion pounds of carbon credits have been traded uh, based on something that's junk or worthless and a further 400 million US dollars worth of credits bought and sold were potentially junk. The whole point being that these, well, I don't know what to make of this. I mean, are you surprised, John? <laughs> well, look, we already know that a huge portion of supposedly ESG-oriented corporate activities, environmental, social, governance, are at least in some minor, if not major way, fraudulent. People make claims that something is environmentally friendly when it's not so clear, in fact. People make claims that they're not exploiting, you know, whatever it is, child labor in the Congo to get green metals out of the ground and so on and so forth. Um, so this is just yet another example of the fact that good intentions, um, I mean, who, who has anything against good intentions? But the problem is when you try to press good intentions through a world in which people want to make money, they will invariably twist those good intentions in various ways as necessary to basically make the bottom line work, whether that's hoovering up tax subsidies, whether it's somehow dodging regulations, who knows what it might be. Uh, this is just another very good example of that. And so, it, I mean, it, governments have the best of intentions, fine. You know, I, I get it. Um, but this is not working. And some, you know, you're either going to give up on it or you're going to have to try to find some other way. It feels like we've analyzed fossil fuels and fossil fuel companies and applied certain criteria to them. And based on the conclusions that we've reached, we've decided we don't want to pursue fossil fuels. But we're starting to apply those same standards and the same analysis to the alternatives. 
um, such as wind and hydrogen. Um, I mean, the company Lego recently analyzed whether they could transition from oil-based bricks to recycled plastic, and they found out that, according to their own analysis, it would actually increase the total emissions uh, of, of their Lego bricks. It seems like the same analysis applied to, to all the, these alternatives that we were supposedly supposed to be transitioning towards exposes them as not particularly great either by their own sort of standards and measures. And so it seems to me now everybody's thinking like, well, we've transitioned away from fossil fuels and we're trying to. And we're trying to transition to something that is just as bad or even worse in some cases. And now we haven't really got any alternative. And, and we're sort of looking in around and, and not realizing what are we going to do about it? Indeed, look, indeed, it's more of the same. If, if all you have to go on is good intentions and you don't do proper cost-benefit analysis, which ultimately requires accountability, and you could argue that private business and the profit motive is ultimately what focuses the mind more than anything else. And of course, that goes hand in hand with the risk of bankruptcy if you get things badly wrong. Um, that's what's missing here. You just cannot transition in any positive direction on good intentions alone. You actually need ways to coordinate action in seeking a goal that takes into account proper cost-benefit analysis. And that's just the way in which the world works. Um, there's a reason why, historically, private sector productivity has always been higher than public sector productivity. And this is just another example of that. Another example is a headline that I read that uh, made me genuinely worried, which is that the national grid is worried about power supply crunches this January specifically, about blackouts even, or of course, brownouts. The risk is still small, but what made me really notice this news story is the blame, where they laid the blame for this risk. And it's, it's on nuclear of all power sources, supposedly because there will be some maintenance for nuclear power plants in January, which is, of course, the worst possible time. And the argument was that this, this nuclear maintenance period and this nuclear outage is going to be the cause of the potential blackout risk. Now, I don't know about you, but this seems a bit dodgy to me. What do you make of it? Well, absolutely. I mean, when when you talk about nuclear power and, and you talk about the the intermittency of power and the need for reliable base power, nuclear is basically top of the table. I mean, of course, a plant occasionally needs maintenance and you have to cycle it down, do the maintenance and then cycle it back up again. OK, but to be fair, almost any power plant occasionally needs maintenance and the relative amount of time required to maintain a nuclear plant once built and up and running is far, far lower than any other known source of generation, be it gas, be it oil, be it coal, be it you know, wind, solar, anything. Um, so so blaming your, uh, your uranium, blaming nuclear power for this problem uh, is really, to be honest, just a lack of good planning. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a cop out and it's BS. And those who understand the way the power generation world works and the various sources of that power, um, we, we know it, we know it's BS uh, and we see right through it. But it's become a matter of mudslinging and politics as, as you said in your response to the previous question, this is about good intentions gone awry. And now we're just, yeah, just sort of, yeah, mudslinging, uh, and, and saying ridiculous things. Um, my last question to you is all about your plans for next week, John, you've got something uh, exciting happening. I'm wondering what role energy is going to play in that, given the, the analysis that we've had today. It plays a very substantial role. Uh, energy 
Look, if there's one sector of the stock market right now that I would say is hot, <laughs> forgive the pun, please, uh, it, it's energy. It's been hot for a while. It's going to remain hot. Uh, we're going into what could be a cold winter in Europe. That's going to create all sorts of issues regarding gas supply. It's sadly, sadly unrealistic that the Ukraine war is going to be resolved in time to reopen uh, a full flow of energy from, from Russia. And so we're going to have to get through a very difficult period. So energy should be front and center of investors' minds at present. And it certainly will be next week. John, thanks very much for joining us. And to everyone at home, thanks for watching. Well, thank you for watching. And I hope you agree it's never been more important to take control of your own money, your own financial situation. We do a daily free email, a fortune and freedom daily email with lots of knowledge, lots of insight. It's a very useful way of protecting yourself for the future. So please click the link in the description or go to fortuneandfreedom.com and get my daily email.